Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, including psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. Hey, Tim, we need to let our listeners know that we're on our way to our 250th episode. It's next week, and every single one of those episodes has been hosted on our provider, Podbean. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Podbean hosts our podcast episodes and distributes them through Apple and Spotify to over 100 other pod listening apps on iOS and Android. And we want to say that we are grateful that this episode, actually everything this month, is sponsored by Podbean. If you're curious, Podbean is the easiest way to create your own podcast. As Kurt said, we use Podbean to host behavioral grooves. And so just download the free Podbean podcast app. And from there, you can start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. Wow, Tim. It only takes minutes to do a podcast. I see. I knew you were a slacker. You say it's hours and hours and hours. I don't get this. Anyway, Podbean provides everything you need to run your podcast, and you can record and publish episodes directly from the app on your phone. Cool. Download the free Podbean app today. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Check it out. Okay, now let's get back to the fantastic guests that we have on this episode, Kurt. All right. We always have fantastic guests, Tim. So this is just one more of the fantastic guests that we have, and that is Richard E. Nisbet. And he is a pioneering social psychologist and author. He is the Theodore M. Newcomb Distinguished Professor of Social Psychology and co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan in Ann Armour. Ann Arbor. My God, I can't even talk because it was so long that I lost all my breath. (laughs) Along with his collaborator, the late Lee Ross, they published dozens of papers and a book on the power of situations. Ross and Nisbet first met in graduate school where they studied under the groundbreaking research of Stanley Shatter at the Columbia at Columbia University, excuse me. God, no kidding. And later then with co-author Tim Wilson, the two Uh, made another groundbreaking observation. They noted that we can only identify, quote, what people think about how they think, but not, quote, how they really think. Yeah. In addition Mm -hmm. to a huge body of research, Richard recently released a capstone book called Thinking, a memoir. And that's what we wanted to talk to him about. Yeah. And so with that, during our month on context, we encourage you to sit back and get ready to fill your tank with high octane cognition and enjoy our conversation with Richard E. Nisbet. Richard Nisbet, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you, glad to be here. We are gonna start with a speed round and we'd like to just find out what's your preference, coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, that was quick. Not even Good. a not even a hesitation. Perfect. We sometimes get people that hesitate. All right. I wish tea was my favorite, but I'm stuck with. <laughs> I, I need the jolt yeah. from coffee. <laughs> Fair I, enough. I need I need the jolt as well. So, all right. Second speed round question: Which is a better way of communicating feedback to grad students? The grunt method or a thoughtful explanation? Oh. Grunt any day. 
I long ago gave up trying to be articulate and clear about <laughs> philosophy and science. <laughs> and I well, also, I also oh, go ahead. well, no, 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 we're doing speed round. So that's okay. We speed can come rounds back always end one. up going into a long <laughs> format conversation. So go, go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, I now have a theory about why you don't give people a verbalized rule for, you know, this idea was a good one because, because it sort of narrows the focus of, of you know, if you just grunt, they, they come away from this, gee, why didn't he like that idea, I wonder? And they think about it more and they induce the rule that you're trying to communicate with your grunt. <laughs> So they so the grunt forces them to process that deeper in 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 a more meaningful way for them. Yeah, that's the theory. And of course, <laughs> I like it. And of course it's easier for me in the long run. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who who would you consider the more absent-minded professor? You or Lee Ross? Oh my God. We're I would like to say we're tied, uh, <laughs> but in fact Lee is. I mean Oh, okay. I mean, actually Lee is I don't know if you probably don't know. Lee just died, actually. Mm. Uh, and he was my dear friend for 55 years. Uh, the two of us would sometimes, <laughs> we'd be going to a meeting and we'd get wrapped up in conversation and wandering around the town where the meeting was. And somebody gets a phone, desperate phone call saying, you guys are needed right now. Oh, oh. So, <laughs> but Lee is the wisest person I ever knew and the most oblivious. <laughs> Now that seems impossible. I yes. mean, yeah. I, okay, I'll take one or the other. Don't try to convince me of both. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> All right. So uh, last, well, actually, Tim has one more speed round question after this. But my, my last speed round question, is there an obligation to point out an error in a speaker's presentation, even if that person is a colleague or a student? Well, sort of especially if they're a colleague or a student. Yeah. Uh, and as I admit in the book, I'm not good about it. I mean, my advisor was terrific. He was frank. If there was an error in a speaker's talk, he would identify it in, in a perfectly polite way. I can't do that. I just am not wired so that I can do that easily. And I rarely have a severe criticism without either keeping my mouth shut or blowing up. I'm <laughs> <laughs> but these, these are a real, real fault. I had one other question that uh, I had a difficult time crafting because I wanted to sort of get your perspective. This was a bit of a musical thing. It was going to be Prokofiev or Presley. or And then I was thinking, well, maybe it should be Beethoven or the Beatles. And then I was thinking, well, maybe it should be Bach or Bernstein. And then, then Joseph Haydn or Woody Herman. And looking for some, <laughs> would you prefer sort of a modern rock and roll or jazz uh, artists compared to uh, uh, classical or neoclassical artists? Well, my, my favorites are classical and rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, both. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Well, we, we will talk more about that later. First, if you could, Richard, tell us a little bit about what was the catalyst behind writing thinking? The main thing is I just, there are ideas that I thought, you know, people... Uh, would benefit from knowing, and they're not—they're not reading the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to get the ideas out there faster. And the other thing is, I've always prided myself on being able to communicate to people. I mean, there's a favorite saying of mine: 
any scientist who can't communicate to a 10-year-old child is a charlatan. <laughs> so, um, I've, I've, I always have that in the back of my head, whoever I'm communicating with. So uh, I thought I would be able to communicate in a way that could reach a large audience. And then finally, I wanted to write a book that might have some, at least, literary value. That is, people would read it for pleasure. Uh, and uh, so far, it looks like that has been successful. Yeah. It, it's this wonderful, almost walk down history of, of uh, you know, psychology, social psychology. I mean, the people that you have interacted with and had the pleasure of working with is the 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 best of the best when we look back at this. And so that for me was one of the wonderful aspects about the book is just hearing some of those stories. As you said, the literary part of this was really good. Is there a particular uh, uh, individual, and obviously you've had influences by a number of different people, but is there one of those many people that you have had the pleasure of either working with or being mentored by throughout your career? that you say just stands out above the rest? Well, Stanley Schachter was a great writer. He was very charming. In fact, at one point he said, on a paper we were working on together, he says, you know, the facts are pretty slim here. We've got to write it very charmingly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so the writers that were sitting on my shoulders while I was writing the book were Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis. Yeah. Because oh. these guys can write you know, complex ideas in a way that's totally clear to anybody. Lewis is also particularly amazing. I mean, he wrote the book about Kahneman and Tversky. Yeah. Uh, and he got it all exactly right. And it, you know, it's not, not simple stuff. And people who would have no psychology found it fascinating. So those are the two people I was trying to imitate. Yeah. Well, speaking of Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, you came to know their work pretty early on and were uh, impressed, if, if that's a fair word, uh, by, by the, the way that they were doing some of their work. Um, what did you think of the development of, of, of this discipline of behavioral economics that, that, that sort of emerged out of this? Well, uh, my friend Lee Ross says, actually, behavioral economics is social psychology with a name change for business reasons. <laughs> so, I mean, it, but he's a very good social psychologist. And I must say about Thaler, he actually read social psychology. I mean, he, he, read, he read me on, and Lee on social psychology. He took Kurt Lewin's ideas, he's the founder of social psychology, and did much more with them than uh, really than either Lee or I did. I mean, I mean, the particular idea of Lewin, which I knew from, you know, er, the first days of graduate school, which is when you're trying to get somebody to do something, think instead of pushing them, think about removing the barriers. And Thaler did brilliant stuff with that. I mean, millions of people are going to have a good retirement because um, he, he removed the barrier. In this case, the main barrier is when you sign up, you're at, yeah. for work and, and you know, would you like to put aside 5% of your income for retirement? And m most people would handle that. Most employers would have a box that you check, but that's effortful. 
<laughs> yes. So Thaler says, let's have that box be the box you check if you don't want to have money put into retirement. And, and the, the impact is it's absolutely enormous. And that should have been a trained social psychologist who came up with that. But you bring up a you bring up a, a very good point is that behavioral economics obviously has has built upon a, a wide variety of different um, venues and, and practices, but social psychology is really the key piece where they're taking all of this information. I found it fascinating when you get you and you were writing about this is that you had talked about base rates and then you were reading about uh, Kahneman and Tversky and they're talking about base rates and it was it was an overlap, but there was difference. Can you talk a little bit about the the difference in how they were looking at base rates versus the way that you kind of were looking at base rates at that point, if you can recall that? Well, essentially, they have the same way in, in, a, in a major sense. People don't pay a, enough attention to base rates in their lives. I mean, uh, they go, oh, and it's a movie with uh, Cary Grant in it. I, Cary Grant is terrific. I'll watch that. And somebody who's sensitive to base rates, oh, wait a minute. Is, is that a good movie by Cary Grant? <laughs> not all of his movies were good movies. And right. uh, one way to find out about that is to ask a, a, a few like-minded friends uh, and I, I'm not the sort of person who wanders the stacks in libraries looking for, you know, offbeat books. I mean, I, I want to be, I want evidence that this thing is really worth doing. I miss a lot of interesting things that way, but I, <laughs> I also save a tremendous amount of time. So social psychology has some striking experiments that are incredibly important. The most important, in my opinion, being Milgram's where you give the person is supposed to give electric, steadily increasing electric shock to this uh, pleasant seeming 50 year old guy. And at one point he says, oh, hey, this is really hurting. Start, and then he start, after a while he starts to scream. And after a while he says, hey, I have a heart condition. And after a while after that, he starts pounding on the wall. And, you know, people keep going. I mean, they keep going to the highest point. Two thirds of people go mm -hmm. all the way up to a position later. You know, danger, severe shock, XXX. You tell this to people, and they sort of believe you, but they don't really. Because if you ask them, do you think the kids sitting next to you in class would have done that? They say, Oh no! Oh, give me a break. How about on the other side? You think he might? No, I really don't think. It. How about you? Oh, would you like me to punch you out? I mean, <laughs> it, it's. You cannot convince people by simply saying two thirds of people do that. It's, two, it's not two thirds of students, it's not two thirds of paid people, it's, it's people from all walks of life. He, by the way, said he, he never had anybody regularly turn him down except preachers and doctors. And the doctors would stop giving him a sermon <laughs> why he ought not to be doing this. But everybody else, you know, almost everybody else. everybody went further than you think you would ever go i was trying to find ways to teach base rates for the behavior of subjects in social psychology experiments and one thing you have to do you have to to show people here here's a random person from that study and you would show an interview with him that's just designed not to be informative and you do that for two or three people and, the, and they now believe you <laughs> that what these people did are what people do in the experiment. So anyway, that was my base rate. 
I'd love to I'd love to get your explanation as to why it's so difficult for us to believe getting back to the Milgram experiments that when you ask someone, well, would you do this? No, of course I wouldn't do this. Would would someone sitting next to me? No, of course they wouldn't. Why don't we connect to the fact that we will do those things? Well, we have strong theories about human behavior, including our own. And that's why the Milgram experiment was so arresting. I mean, it first came out, I mean, people could hardly believe it. In fact, people didn't believe it. He had to have psychiatrists and psychologists sit behind a one-way mirror and watch the thing. And they, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And without that, the experiment would have faded away. So they were looking at base rates in a very different sense. They, their research was always much drier. They came from a mathematical psychology position, a cognitive psychology position, uh, but in some ways tidier because often they had the mathematical model to show what people ought to be doing. And then the other thing, they had something I didn't have. That is, they had the concept of the representative heuristic. The judgments that we make are heavily, heavily influenced by similarities and whether one thing is representative of another. And I immediately latched onto that and that became part of my whole story. Well, and a lot of your work has focused in on on attribution and attribution theory and various different pieces. Can you uh, again talk about what was what got you interested in that? I mean, some of your first studies with the with the you know utilizing uh, the medicine and the shocks and how pe- how long people were able to take that shock if they thought it was attributed to or the feelings they were getting were attributed to something else were fascinating. But what led you down that that path? Well, whatever reason, most of the early research I did was showing that people were making an error. Uh, (laughs) And and in the case of the shock experiment, the idea was give give people a pill, tell them that it will, in effect, don't use these words, produce physiological arousal. We give them the exact symptoms that people feel when they're getting electric shock. There's a heart rate increase and the breathing rate becomes irregular and the palms become a little bit sweaty and so on. So we say, this is a pill that's going to cause these effects. And then we say, we would, we're, doing, uh, we're looking at the effects of this pill on pain sensitivity. And we're going to give you these steadily increasing electric shocks. And we'd like you to tell us when you first feel the shock, when it first becomes painful, and when it becomes too painful to bear. Other people get this same pill, which of course is a sugar pill placebo, but we don't give them these symptoms. And as it turned out, and this is astonishing, the people who've taken the pill that's causing arousal, they think, but which is really being caused by the shock, tolerate four times the amperage of subjects who not. So they're making an error there. I mean, they're, they're mistaking the source of the arousal. Uh, and then the other thing about that that became really central to my career in a lot of ways is it after the subject had taken all this shock, I would say, well, you know, uh, you took a lot of shock. Uh, that, that That's impressive. Uh, why do you suppose you were able to take so much shock? And then I'd say, well, you know, I used to build radios and I would get shocks. And so <laughs> I, I'm, sh- I'm sure that, that could have been valuable. So tell me, did you did you think about the, the pill at all? No, no, no. I mean, I was too busy thinking about that shock. Uh, so all in all, only three people ever mentioned the, the pill. I, wow. 
and I would, I would give them the theory. I said, here's what happened. I gave you a pill, which was a sugar pill, and I told you it was going to cause arousal. And I said, you're getting that shock, and you're getting more and more aroused. And at some point, you think, well, wait a minute. I mean, yeah, they, I'm getting that arousal, just like they said. And so the shock is not as aversive. I never convinced a single subject that that was what went on. <laughs> they would say, well, that's very interesting. I'm sure a lot of people did think that way. But see, I, I used to build radios and I got. <laughs> so <laughs> that that is fantastic. I, I love that. Uh, boy, our our unconscious right is is a very, very powerful thing. And uh, and. I guess I'm just I'm just curious because so much of your work has, has surrounded um, sort of the effects of the unconscious. What what are you where where are you at these days on the impact that the unconscious has in our in our behaviors and our decision making? Okay. Well, the first systematic research I did on it was to show you can expose people to some stimulus, you know what effect it's going to have on the person, and then. Sure enough, it does have that effect. And then you ask them, did that stimulus have an effect on you? People will usually deny it. I mean, the, the favorite study here is one with nylon stockings, women in a mall, or look at an array of four nylon stockings, and we'll ask them to judge the quality. So they systematically examine each one and give us a judgment. And it turns out that they're four times as likely to choose the last thing they've looked at than the first thing. It's a huge effect, which a lot of merchandisers are quite interested in. <laughs> uh, you don't dare ask them, say, excuse me, but do you suppose the position of those nylon stockings could have influenced your judgment? Because they look at you like either you're crazy or I'm crazy and I'm getting out of here. <laughs> so, and that's, we, we did a dozen experiments like that. And incidentally, we were often wrong about what effect we thought the stimulus would have. They oh. didn't do what we thought they would do. They did something else, but they were still wrong. I mean, so. <laughs> just, just in a different direction than what you had anticipated. Yeah, that's right. And the conclusion from all that thing is that we don't have direct access to our cognitive processes, period. Nobody's going to quarrel with you. Say so you don't have direct access to your memory processes. I say, you know, all I know is I went oomph and there it was. There, or they don't have direct access to sensory processes. They don't know how it is that they get from the stimulus to the visual image. We are under the illusion that because we know a lot of the things that went on in our heads, and because we have theories, some not good at all, about what kinds of things affect us, we're under the illusion. That, uh, that we know what affected us. And I, I think I'm probably, me and my colleague, Tim Wilson, are the only people who really truly believe that we don't have access to our cognitive processes. And often when people will ask me, why did you do that? If it's a psychologist, I say, well, let me remind you that I'm Nisbet of Nisbet and Wilson. <laughs> and anything I tell you right now is fabrication. I hope it's true. It might well be true. But well, I mean, I think that gets to the point that we tend to rationalize our decision making, right? That's that's basically what you're saying. We we don't necessarily understand all of the factors that go into those decision making, but for whatever reason, we as humans tend to say have that 
feeling that we need to be able to say and justify why I did what I did or made the exactly. decision that I made. Uh, thoughts on that? Tim did some wonderful studies showing that at least some kinds of judgments are better handled by the unconscious mind. And oh. if you bring the conscious mind into it, you make a works decision. So even like people making judgments about which of these four jams would you like to take home with you? They make a, a judgment and then you know where, how good a judgment it is because you can ask them later how much they enjoyed it or you know how much other people enjoyed it who've never been asked about it. You know what's the you know which is the best jam. But if you ask people to, to think for a moment, to tell me what exactly it is about each jam, what the flavor is, what the aroma is, what the feel of the, tell me all of its attributes and then have them make the judgment. They make worse judgments. <laughs> they pick the wrong jam. And it's the same thing with a, an apartment. You can say, you can, you two apartments, choose between two apartments and they differ on five or six different dimensions, uh, size, cost, attractiveness, location, etc. If you have people think out loud about each of those attributes, they're more, they're more likely to pick the wrong apartment. If they just look at it and make the judgment, they, they do better. So how widespread this effect is, that is how, how many decisions are better made without dragging the conscious mind into it, we don't really know yet. But I mean, we know there is such a phenomenon as making a worse judgment because you focus consciously on attributes. Of the object. And is that related to uh, and anything of, from Kahneman and his, his system one versus system two thinking in your, it, it, are they related in any way? I mean, uh, is it just the system one taking over in certain instances where that's a better way of doing that or? Yeah, it is. It is related. I mean, oddly, you know, I might have come up with that terminology. Uh, speaking of Kahneman, the reviewer on our paper, there were three reviewers at Psychological Review, which is the major psychology paper, three reviewers of that paper, uh, which was a very long paper. At one point, he only had two reviews in, uh, and he and the editor accidentally put the, re, the rejection letter in the letter which Tim Wilson wow. opened to his shock, and underneath it, was the review by Kahneman, which came in very late. And the, then the review was, oh, fine, we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> so, and and Kahneman's, the main thing Kahneman did for that paper, and it was huge, was to say, yeah, it's too long, but don't cha change a single word because you need the, the whole list of, of facts and the whole theory that has to be there to be convincing. Clinical psychologists and philosophers tended to reject the conclusion of the paper early on, but that didn't last long. And now everybody knows the, the basic idea there that we're blind to many of our cognitive processes. Early on in your career, you, you made a note in the book, you said at one point you were working in a vacuum and there was a... a a sense that I got from that that almost sounded like you sort of intuitively knew that you want you needed collaborators or wanted collaborators. And of course, uh, uh, much of your work has been done in collaboration. Um, at the same time, you said, you know, if you're going to be an academic, it, it helps to foster originality, to know things that other people don't know. So how does this 
uh, can you help me sort of balance this idea that on one hand, you need to be specialized and be expert in something that others are, are not, and and you also need to or desire to, to collaborate with others? Right. Well, everybody brings something different to the party. And, and I have this notion that new disciplines are formed at the intersection or the, the, the point of contact of two different disciplines. And I think that's because if you, actually the behavioral economics story is quite interesting because the president of the Russell Sage Foundation, which brings academics to New York to write their book uh, for a year, he became aware of this work that Kahneman and Tversky and Ross and I were doing on um, cognition, showing that people's choices are often suboptimal and we don't have a clear access to what they are uh, and we can't often give a correct rational explanation of them and so on. And economists had this archaic <laughs> 200-year-old theory, but, I mean, which Thaler now uh, mocks by saying, here's what people do and here's what econs do. <laughs> right, right. So he brought these people together, and that was the birth of behavioral econ- economics. George Lowenstein once told me that uh, he had a chance to talk to Amos Tversky when he was going into grad school. And Tversky, and George said he was interested in psychology, and Tversky said, we need economists in this field. You, you, you need to take your psychology interest, but bring it to the field of economics. I wonder um, when that was. Do you recall when that was, the year or approximately, even, even? Probably. Well, when was George going into, into well, they did school? Ca- the, well, they did CASBAs in the 90s. I would guess that that was in the 70s, early wow. 70s. Wow. Uh, I, yeah. I, did, I actually didn't know that Amos was thinking about e- economics that early. But, oh gosh, why not? I mean, he was focusing on choice. I mean, as his, so... Yeah, that's that's what microeconomics is all about. Well, you had uh, you talked about this this uh, bringing in different disciplines and different things, and at the University of Michigan, it seemed like, at least from what you described in the book, you had all of these different opportunities to work with a variety of different people from different disciplines. And Amos was one of those at that point. I forget what it was, Box or one of the the different all the different acronyms that you had for the different working pieces. Well, how did how did that come about at the University of Michigan and what, what kind of values do you think that brought to not just the university, but the people working on those? Well, well it's an extremely interesting question. I, I, I'm not confident of my answer, but I will tell you that Michigan is unique uh, in the extent to which it had all kinds of groups form. I mean, the Bach group that you're referring to had a philosopher, an artificial intelligence person, an economist, and a mathematician. And that group ultimately gave rise to the complex adaptive systems program, which is now based at Michigan and at the Santa Fe Institute. And physicists are involved in that, uh, deeply involved in the complex systems stuff. I've been in a dozen different groups. I mean, one composed of that same artificial intelligence guy uh, and another philosopher and a cognitive psychologist. I mean, just get together and talk, you know, yeah. and see, see what happens. And we realized that the f- major theme in our work for each of us was induction. That uh-huh. is making inferences 
about the world. And we wrote a book on induction. And then <laughs> I have the sad story. I have 15 years after the book was written, I asked a, a really terrific cognitive psychologist, I said, tell me, do you think that, what kind of impact that book had? And he said, well, um, it was a book you should read if you were interested in induction. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <clears throat> and then I say, well, but really, it is a book you should read if you're interested in induction. <laughs> right. so, but I mean, so the, these things don't always produce, you know, great outcomes, but you, you never know in advance. So to what degree do you think we are able to teach people about becoming better at reasoning? Well, <clears throat> that's it, because I did, I did all these studies showing the errors in reasoning that people make, uh, not using the base rate, failure to understand the law of large numbers, which is that you need more and more evidence in order to become more and more confident. And that's especially true when you're looking at an object or an event that's variable in nature. Um, and, you and you know that, then you know you've got to get more evidence and so on. And I used to say, you know, not only are we stupid, but you can't make us smarter. <laughs> and, and I now going back after all the research, where's that came from? It was dogma in, in psychology. Partly it came from <clears throat> Piaget. Yeah. Some basic rules of reasoning, which are wired in, they just come genetically. The rest have to be induced. You can't teach. You can't just plop these rules down on top of people. They have to induce them. He didn't have a, he had not a shred of evidence for that. Uh, and there was no other psychologist that had a, evidence worth a darn for that. But I believed it because, you know, Piaget is a smart guy. I mean, <laughs> who am I to contradict Piaget? So I decided to, set, to show, indeed, I'm right. We're dumb. Can't make us smarter. So I, 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 I started doing research, testing that idea. And to my astonishment, you can teach these ideas with, which are profoundly important but which we have an insufficient grasp of. You know, everybody understands the law of large numbers in some sense, uh, and everybody can apply it in fairly complex issues in areas where they're genuinely expert, where they really know the territory. But to give you an example of uh, how it may or may not be used, if you ask uh, a University of Michigan freshman, first day of class, you say, you know, uh, early on in the baseball season, there are usually several batters who have averages, you know, uh, notably over 300, but nobody ever finishes the season. Why do you suppose that is? They'll say, well, you know, the, the, the pitchers make the necessary adjustments or maybe these very successful batters, they get, um, they get cocky. If they've had a statistics course, they'll say, oh, you know, how many at-bats have you had? I mean, the clincher is after your first at-bat, your batting average is either zero or one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so, so extreme scores, and this is, you know, this has a million ramifications, extreme scores tend to be rare. If, if events are distributed at all normally, I mean, if you remember, you know, the, the average is the top, and that's where most of the, that's where the action is. And extreme scores tend to be rare, and that point leads to another one, the tie-in between law of large numbers 
and the bell curve and the concept of regression to the mean. Mm -hmm. Every time I had a graduate student who I thought was absolutely fantastic, the person is brilliant, it's giving me the next Tversky, you know, they turned out to be very good psychologists. They didn't turn out to be the next Tversky. Uh, and, um, so some of my less generous acquaintances might say I'm uh, opinionated. <laughs> so uh, I see an event, oh, that's the way it is. No, so, maybe not. That was very striking to me. You take a statistics source, and the statistics source never talks about baseball. In fact, the shame of it is that statistics courses don't talk about interesting everyday life events at all, and a terrible mistake. They'll probably say, a statistician will probably say, I've heard them say this. Well, you know, there's so much darn stuff to teach, the standard deviation, blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, you could teach that stuff more effectively if you used everyday life examples. And then they'll ex escape much more readily in everyday life. Psychology majors increase by 70% in their ability to solve simple little problems like that baseball problem. Chemistry majors don't improve one bit. English majors don't improve one bit. At one point, looked at uh, medical students to see do they get better at statistical and probabilistic reasoning. And sure enough, they do. <laughs> and I said, well, wait, what? You know, they're dissecting bodies and learning about why are they getting better? So I went, went to medical school for a little while and it became totally obvious. I mean, the, the diagnosis classes are all about statistics and probability. And one of the teachers that uh, gave me an idea that is, I, I absolutely love, he says, when, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Mm. In other words, it's probably the most common thing. Don't, you know, don't come up with page 372 of infectious diseases. I mean, just, <laughs> maybe the guy has the flu. But, but that goes into some of the, the, the aspects of that, right? That if you had just seen a picture of a zebra, you know, and it's, it's, it's top of mind, Right. Even it gets into some of the, the work that you were looking at and, and different pieces of this is like, oh, well, it could be a zebra then, as opposed to going, wait, how many zebras are there around me versus horses and all of those facets? That's a good example of an experiment that people have been doing. I mean, you put people in a voting booth in a school or in a church, and the ones who are in a school are more likely to vote favorably on the school millage. Uh, the ones who are in the church are more likely to vote unfavorably on abortion. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, we've got a million of them, a social, a social right. psychologists by now. And they're, they're actually embarrassing. I mean, it's just, you know, that we just we're getting pushed around by these totally arbitrary events all the time. Fortunately, I don't actually believe that because I'm a perfectly cheerful person. <laughs> but you know, at heart, in my heart of hearts, I know that you know I'm just being bat battered and buffered by these crazy well, little things. Well, one of the pieces in in a lot of those um, studies and research is this idea of of can you replicate them and the whole replication right. piece. And I know you have a, an opinion on that. So right. tell a little bit about your thoughts on on replication and and why or why isn't that a, a thing that we should be paying attention to or putting as much emphasis on it as as has been. Okay. I'm so glad you asked because I, 
I told you I was opinionated, and now you're, you're going to get a dose. <laughs> this of is what we want. Great. That's okay. Bring it on. Bring it so on. when this first came out, I said, "What the hell?" I mean, I knew there was not a serious replication problem, and here's why: I've been in the business for decades, and I can I can hardly think of any cases of an of an interesting, important study that came out and it didn't replicate. I mean, it just there's almost no things like that. Uh, so a big part of the of reason they came up with that is that they, they're, they're sampling the pages of the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology just when it's the, the rage for these crazy stimulus has an effect on you that you wouldn't think it should. And they don't replicate because a very long time ago, I read a fascinating book. It was reporting on the failures of studies to replicate and the, 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 there was a criticism brought against the subliminal perception work. Mm -hmm. that is where you perceive before you perceive or you perceive without perceiving i mean and people were just saying oh that's hooey i mean they really did perceive it you know um we now know that's not true i mean stuff gets in you you don't know you saw and sec split seconds later you're influenced by that thing. You don't even know that you saw it. I mean, so there's the, the subliminal perception thing that that's all over. But the, the guy said, look, it can't be just that these people really perceived the thing. And that's why it happened, because you don't get the effects when you give them sub supraliminally. So mm. that everybody, they, I saw it. I know I saw it. You don't get the effect. Well, so that means these studies that we're talking about now, there's a very small margin. Uh, they can't. The person can't be aware of the stimulus because you know they're not going to be so much influenced by it. They can't be totally unaware of. They can't. They fail to see it. So they're fragile. So you know he looks at all this these fragile studies with a lot of failures of replication and and then tars the whole field of psychology with it. The work was irresponsible. First of all, he should have been able to figure that out for himself. Secondly a lot of the so-called replications were not replications at all. I mean, there were studies, somebody did a study of uh, attitudes toward African-Americans and tried to replicate it in Italy. And guess what? <laughs> Italians don't have the same attitudes toward African-Americans as you. Or another, another study asked people how they would feel if they were unable to answer a question in a college discussion. And this is asked to people who've never been to college. I mean, so... <laughs> Uh, it, yeah. it's, and if you, and, and then this is the killer. I mean, this shows the extent to which it was irresponsible. If you look at the studies that they look, were trying to replicate or trying not to replicate, and you look at those where they consulted with the original investigator first, those studies were four times as likely to replicate as the ones where they just went off half-cocked and thought they were doing. My own particular contribution to this comes from the insomnia study. Mm. And uh, sure enough, uh, like 15 years after the original study, somebody, a psychologist walks up to me and says, I know why your insomnia study doesn't replicate. And people who like to think show the effect, and people who don't like to think don't show the effect. And the original study was done with Yale students who are <laughs> thinkers. They like to think. They wouldn't be at Yale if they didn't like to think. What I learned from that 
is that you should think of every psychology experiment as an existence proof. Once upon a time, at a particular location, with a particular kind of subject, in a particular environmental circumstances, you get this, ef when, this effect, A leads to B. You may want to replicate that, and the replicators that drive me crazy, they want to, they want to replicate. They, a study isn't any good if you can't exactly duplicate it. I mean, so you should always just, next step after you find, get a finding is to try and duplicate it. No. That, that's a waste of time. The next step after you get an effect is to do something different, which you think ought to theoretically make a difference to the phenomenon. Use a different subject population so you can broaden the principle indicated by the study. Yeah. But, you know, these people, uh, there are departments where they're, they're totally dominant and they're, and they're, they're teaching nonsense. And, yeah. We, t we talked with John Barge, uh, who obviously was in the, in the midst of, of a lot of this, and he talked a lot about the same thing, this idea that, you know, if you don't have the exact same replication, you, you, you run the risk of that, A, there's some other factor that's impacting that, that therefore can lead to a different result. And actually, that's really good, because now you're, you're finding out more information about this phenomena. And and that's what should be studied is like, so why exactly like you said, it's this, you know, cognition aspect that is plays into the sleep study that you, you just did. So right. I, I, I fully think that there's a, there's a big miss there from a, a lot of different perspectives. You know, physiologists go and live in another town so they can watch the guy work on the preparation so they can get the preparation right. I did research on the feeding behavior of obese people, and I was comparing it to the feeding behavior of rats, uh, which have had a lesion to the ventral medial hypothalamus, and and the and the similarities in the eating behavior is astonishing. So I, I was doing the human research, but I, I wanted to also do the animal research, and so I had, but I didn't know how to do the lesions. So I, I hired somebody, I hired an assassin <laughs> to destroy the ventromedial hypothalamus of these rats. And they didn't get fat. And I think, well, that guy must have done it wrong. So I didn't realize. You only get the phenomenon with female rats, and I was using only male rats. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. You know, if I'd spent a day in somebody's laboratory, I would have learned that and would have saved a huge amount of time. So, <clears throat> Yeah. It, it, you were talking about people thinking the people who are thinkers are, were more likely to to actually replicate the uh, the results in the sleep study. You titled your book "Thinking." What are you thinking about these days? One of the things I think about most is what everybody's thinking about most is the destruction that's being wrought by the fact that people have different information sources. Um, it's not even so much the disinformation and the, the fake news, though there is that, of course. It's the, it's the body English that gets put on and, 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 and the, the stuff that Facebook will admit that the communications that are most extreme are the most likely to get spread. So it's, a, it's a, an awful situation, and I don't, I don't know what to do about it. There is one very interesting thing that's being done by somebody. Uh, he brings right-wingers and left-wingers together to talk. They tend not to be disagreeable conversations. They don't 
we don't agree with each other on most of what gets talked about. But it, after it's all over, we say, well, you know, like, it's a nice guy, but I mean, so misled. And he said, you know, these, you know, I know these people were right wingers, or I know they were left wingers, but they're not the crazies, the people who get on the internet and just, you know. <laughs> and actually, a lot of them were the people who get on the internet and say these really super extreme things. So if you could just get me, I mean, it's so easy to live in your cocoon. I mean, academics, I mean, you know, you'd, you'd have to walk a long way through a lot of halls in most universities to find a conservative, which is, in my opinion, too bad. But, uh, but it certainly keeps academics in a cocoon where they believe the only reason. I read the Wall Street Journal, despite the fact that it can cause some indigestion sometimes. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, it really does. There are a couple of columnists there who regularly influence my opinion. One of them is Peggy Noonan, who's Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan's previous speechwriter. She's such a level-headed person. She's, she's very interesting on all kinds of topics, which don't necessarily have a right, left ring, but a lot of it does have a conservative slant, and she's so smart. I always, if she says it, I better think about it. Yeah. Wow. So I think, I think everybody ought to feel like they've got to have, they need to have some input from the other side. Well, Richard, that's a, it's an interesting concept because I've tried to do that at least with different things that I follow and doing things on social media and trying to get that different perspective because I, in the same belief as you that, look, if nothing else, I, I, I definitely want to make sure that I'm not just making assumptions about what the other side is thinking or saying versus my own view and I get stuck within this little bubble of my own. And what I've found, and this is, you know, just me and I'm, I, I think I'm a pretty reasonable guy, and I think that I kind of look at this is that even when I do that, sometimes I, I see these things. And it, as you said, it's that little indigestion that you get, that you get all of a sudden, it's like you read it, and you go, oh, it just makes me mad. And so then I just stop reading because I don't want to feel that anger. And I think it's a really hard thing. But yes, I I, I don't know if there's any any hints that you have about how you can, you know, push down that indignation and this kind of say, no, I need to read this through to basically make sure that I'm getting the full full story here. Well, you know, there is a, a publication that does this. It's called The Week. You know about this? Uh, I've heard about it, yeah. They have an opinion. They're basically liberal. But they every, every event of any importance or speech of any importance, they put in some right-wing opinions about it. You eventually get the habit of saying, "Oh, that's the right winger." I, have to pay, I don't have to pay any attention to that. <laughs> but often they, you know, they'll they'll say, "Well, I don't know." I mean, for, it's certainly interesting to know what the other side is thinking. Yeah, uh, I was on a, a bunch of social scientists who were working uh, Clinton campaign in 2016, and we were all liberals. And Michael Moore, you yeah, know, the documentary maker, he's yeah. from Michigan. He's working class himself. And he told anybody who would listen that Trump is going to win. Like every other liberal, we were sound. Oh, forget about it. But let's let's just make it a a, a landslide as we can. We were we were so out of it. We 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 didn't know who was on the other side. We didn't know why they were there. I mean, and so I mean, it, just to be a more effective left winger, if you're left wing, or a more effective right winger, if you're right winger, know what the other side is thinking. I mean. Yeah. 
you you know what the lay of the land, you know the territory, and if you you want to persuade them, you'll have a better chance. That's a very very good piece of advice for us, and thank you for the mention about the week. That is something I was not familiar with, so I'm excited to dig into that. I was curious if you were going to spend the next year on a desert island, and you had to take the music of three artists with you. Who who might you take? Beethoven, Beethoven, and Beethoven. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe speak. every now and then pray for you know the, the a wave would bring in a recording by schubert okay, uh, okay. So, <laughs> so you like so, the romantics okay that, that, right that's a good right. good place that's, to start uh what right. what in beethoven's uh pantheon of you know library of of work what uh what would be the most favorite things well i mean the the emotion i mean it's just no, no, no other classical music uh, has the kind of impact uh, that he does, and and there's a you know kind of grandiose streak in me that I think Beethoven brings out in everybody. Uh, so, the emperor, um, <laughs> a concerto, <laughs> yeah, uh, and then and some of the stuff is so just deeply moving. I mean, this second movement of the seventh symphony. I mean, I just. Mm. I melt whenever I hear that. Aside from that, it's the other romantics. It's sort of, um, there's a sort of gap with Brahms. I love the keyboard stuff uh, from Brahms. I'm not mm -hmm. crazy about the symphonic stuff. Yeah. It's not sufficiently mel melodic. I find I'm listening to Brahms, oh, well, that's neat. And then uh, for, uh, suddenly I'm, I'm wool gathering. I'm not really paying attention. <laughs> <clears throat> the same thing is true of Wagner's music. You know what Mark Twain said about Wagner's music? It's better than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's what I, I mean. If you think about emotion, and I mean, he just gets bombastic. Yeah, right. Bombastic, right. That's over the line for me. <laughs> uh, that's all right. All right, Richard, I, I have a follow-up to that. So you're on the island. You're listening to Beethoven. Who would be the researcher that you would like to have there to have as your beyond listening to the music that you're having some intellectual conversations with and well, that could person could be alive or you know uh, obviously um any anybody in the past century or two centuries so well unfortunately they're both dead one is amos and the yeah. other is my friend lee ross who just oh. i mean any thing he turned his attention to he had interesting observations about sometimes at greater length than most people <laughs> really wanted. Uh, but actually, I had several conversations with him on his deathbed. Mm. And he, he never came up for air. <laughs> oh, my God. Talking. Wow. Yeah. And wow. Everybody who knows him laughs at that. I mean, no matter how much you love him, you know, saying that. so Lee, for sure. Amos, for sure. What about Amos? What What is it about Amos that you would like to, to have that would endear you to have a, well, a year <laughs> again anything he turned his attention to he was going to have interesting observations about but more importantly than that he was going to be right about i mean it's just <laughs> um so, so oh okay that's a thing i don't have to think about anymore because i know the correct opinion that <laughs> so uh you know that my joke that in, in the book meeting amos tversky was an iq test the smarter you are, the quicker you realize this guy is smarter than you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. um, but, um, but it's interesting. I mean, the contrast with Kahneman is interesting because um, Kahneman can be wrong. 
I mean, it's wrong about a lot of things. Well, wrong about a lot of things about my work. I mean, we just disagree. And, and uh, most people would say the same thing. I mean, everybody would say the same thing about Amos. I mean, it just wasn't wrong. And I think most people who know Danny would say he often is wrong. But that's not a criticism for me. I mean, I think it's part of why he's so creative. If you're climbing out a limb often enough, you're going you're gonna to saw, saw yourself off one of these days. I mean, so, I mean, I... He used to say about Amos that if it weren't for Danny, Amos would have been the world's greatest mathematical psycho psychologist, mm. period. I mean, he was that anyway, but I mean, it was so much more. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was a Nobel Prize winning economist. Yeah. And you, and you know the anecdote, which I got from Michael Lewis about Amos being at a party being given for a physicist who had just been given the second highest award in physics. And he, Amos talked with a guy for an hour or two, and after, at the end of it, he asked a friend, who was that physicist I was talking to so much? He says, oh, he's not a, a physicist, he's a psychologist. And the physicist, <laughs> impossible. That's the smartest, he was the smartest physicist in the room. Wow. So that's the kind of mind we're talking about. Yeah. And that's why it takes you not that long to figure out this guy is on a, a different planet. I mean, so. Richard, we are so grateful for your time. We uh, can't express our gratitude deeply enough for you taking time to, to chat with us today. And thank you for, for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. Thanks. Well, it's great fun for me, obviously. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Richard, have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our thinking about thinking brains. Yeah, that's like the big, the big, big takeaway for me. And I just got to say, this is like the month of hits. Zimbardo, <laughs> Barge, Nisbet. Oh man, it's fantastic. Oh, it it is awesome. I am just, you know, we are so lucky. It is yes. really, truly a, a pleasure and an honor to be able to interview these people and to talk to them and learn from them. And I think that's, that's fantastic. I just got to say, and how great is it that when we have guests on that automatically without any, without any encouragement, just naturally and organically bring up your hero, Kurt Lewin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes, yes, they do. Well, because Lewin is a luminary in this field. He was a groundbreaker, a pioneer, whatever other adjective or word that yeah. you can use to describe him. And I think, as, as, as Richard said, you know, there's this idea that he's really underappreciated. Um, yeah. I think that yeah. there are this idea of force field analysis of driving and restraining forces is just powerful. It's simple, but it's powerful. His behavior model, you know, B equals uh, P. I'm going to mess it up now. Um, <laughs> you know, but the math will be lost on me. So don't well, it's, it's, it's really not a hard, you know, it's, it's the person and the, and the situation. And so it's about, and the environment P and E. Um, and so, yeah, there's just a lot of value in being able to look back at some of these people who have done research in the past that maybe not necessarily was overlooked, but, you know, could be brought back into today to say, 
what has changed because I think some things have changed, but what is still consistent? And those I think are really interesting conversations to have. Can we also say that it's pretty cool that in our conversation with Zimbardo and our conversation with John Barge and our conversation with Richard Nisbet, all three of them, again, also brought up Henry Milgram and his work. And I love that. Again, just these are the greats. If if you are interested in behavioral science and you're not reading their original works, get out and just check them out because yeah. it's just fantastic. They're amazing thinkers. Well, and again, I think what all of these guys are studying and looking at is is human behavior, why we do what we do. And the, this idea that it was because of who we are was the prevailing yeah. kind of aspect. And what Milgram, what Lewin even talked about with his, you know, the, the environment that you're in um, and what Zimbardo did, all of them showed that as much as we would predict behavior being based upon who we are, our actual behavior is driven much more by the situation that we find ourselves within. Yeah. And that's the context piece that this is this month is about, that we are influenced by the things that are happening around us, the social norms that are prevalent in the society that we live in, the physicality of the environment, the expectations of a certain role, the authority figure or non-authority figure that is telling us or asking us to do something. All of those are really powerful motivators and influence what we do. Yeah. So not only are we not aware of what we would do to, and we, it's very difficult for us to predict exactly how we will behave in any specific situation. When we do it, we're not aware of why we do it. <sighs> we don't connect to why uh, the the, uh, the the was it the pantyhose study with having uh, four sets you know sets of pantyhose lined up and just please choose which you think and and to think that the the one that's uh, on the on the far right right is the has a four times greater likelihood of being chosen and people can't explain why and it just has to do with the location mm-hmm. it, it, it was location only this fantastic study well and and going beyond that even beyond that like when you go back and and talk to people about it and say well it's the location isn't it they would say no that is not right. it. That's right. That's and right. this idea, and even if you said, well, a bunch of other people, you know, did this, and then this is what we are hypothesizing that it is this, they're still saying, well, no, maybe for others, but not for me. <laughs> right. And that I think is a big insight is that we yeah. are not good. We are hugely deficient in our ability to understand why we do what we do. Especially in the moment, especially in the moment, particularly in the moment, but even upon reflection, because our brains work in such a way that we rationalize our decisions, that we rationalize these choosing the pantyhose because they're on the end with some other thing. Well, no, the texture was better. The, you know, I like the packaging. It was cheaper. It was whatever the reason is. And once we hold that belief, we have confirmation bias. And so uh, by allowing that it could be something else it's we we fight against that and so even in reflection it's very difficult but yes definitely in the moment 
Yeah. I, I, Nisbet said, uh, it, when you ask me, he said, anything I tell you right now is fabrication. <laughs> what a great word. I hope it's true, but it, well, it, may, but it may not well be. Yeah. That, that's right. Which again, you know, we've talked to people about memory and memory is such a interesting facet too, that we yeah. create memory every time. It's not something that's a video in our head that we just rewind and play. It's yeah. it's actually being actively created every time. And so it gets changed, it gets modified. And so even in memory, we have these differences that come in, which is a whole separate topic. And we should have a month on memory. At one oh, we, we actually, we need to do that. We yeah. absolutely need to do that because it is fascinating. One of the things that I found really fascinating was this idea that making you can make a worse judgment because you focus on something consciously, like like sort of the the cost benefit analysis thing. Uh, I don't think he explained it enough in our conversation, but the the idea is that when we're whatever decision we're making, let's say we're going to buy a refrigerator and we're going to go through a cost benefit analysis of three of the of refrigerators because we've narrowed it down. It, that Nisbet says that. That if we were to make that decision right then and there in that moment of doing that cost benefit analysis, we're likely to make more mistakes than if we just sit on it for a while. Let our subconscious, our unconscious, do some of the work. Let it do some processing. And and by giving our unconscious time to do some processing, we make better decisions. We'll actually come out better. And of course, we won't know the difference, mm. right? You know, we won't be aware of it, but that people end up being more satisfied with their decisions when they give those, especially large decisions, time to percolate a little bit. And I think that that's a really important message to take away. And I think he kind of worked through it pretty quickly in our conversation. So that's why I wanted to, to return to it because I find it fascinating and it's a good life lesson. Yeah, the the idea that even if we're very quantitative and looking at things, it reminds me, Tim, of you know, this idea that you go into a audio store, right? And you're listening to two different sets of speakers. And because you're comparing them right to left and they're right there. And I don't know, maybe did Richard talk about this? Somebody talked about this before, but this idea that you hear, uh, you know, one sounds a little better, right? But if you put those speakers in your house, you would have no no way of being able to discern that without having them, you know, comparing side side. right, you know, right side by side. But what you do notice is that the speakers you bought are huge, and I don't fit into my my living room. <laughs> and I could have got those smaller speakers that would have fit really nice on that shelf and wouldn't have made such a big craziness piece of this. And so those comparisons of what we're doing and how we're going to understand and how it's going to actually impact us in in the future. You know, again, we're poor at, at being able to predict that. And I just want to make a note, man, you're talking about pre-1978 stuff because there hasn't been like a store with speakers in it since I don't know when. <laughs> I don't know when. Oh, man. Okay. What, what else did you want to groove on? Well, you know, it's hard to admit you're wrong, but it's probably a good thing to do. And, and even Nisbet admits to being wrong yeah. and that... You yeah. know, particularly as he was saying, you know, he, oh, you can't teach people new ideas. And then he's like, oh, well, I guess yeah. the research shows that. And I th and I appreciate that in many of the researchers that we've talked to, some the luminary kind of researchers that we've talked yeah. to. Gary Latham is, again, the, I think the best example of this in this idea, like, 
telling his his research assistant, "Hey, if you if this proves right, I'll eat the paper that it's printed out on." And then yes. And then it proves right. And he's like, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> I got to eat but, the computer paper. <laughs> but he, he changed his perspective and he admitted that he was wrong, that his preconceived ideas were not what actually the data showed. And I think that's a really good life lesson. And it's one that we talked about with John Barge. I think it's something that kind of was underwritten in the idea that we talked with Zimbardo. But this idea that we hold these beliefs, yet when we're faced with contradictory evidence, confirmation bias kicks in, a number of other biases kick in, and we hold strongly to those, as opposed to just saying, ah, yeah, I was wrong. Let's, yeah. I need to admit that and, and move on. Yeah. When I get new evidence, when I get new data, I change my mind. What do you do? That's that's the question that continues to stand out in my mind. What do you do? I think that that's an important part of it. How about the replication crisis? What did you think of that? Oh, you know, one. again, a I think the nomenclature around replication crisis is all wrong. It's not a crisis. It's a replication uh, adventure. It's a replication um, <laughs> yeah. enhancement. It is all of these it, things. It's uh, like a Disney ride. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, 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 and I should be saying, right? Yes, this, and this I, if anything, I, I and said no right away. I need to go, yes, and it's not like a Disney ride. It's <laughs> right, like a, right. yeah. But the idea that he brought up that I have actually, we interviewed him a while ago. And so this has been percolating in my head over and over again. And I've brought it up a couple different times in other interviews. But it's this idea that, hey, I've, can hardly think of a case that wasn't interesting that hasn't been replicated is one of the things he said. Yep. But I think even more importantly, the thing that I've been percolating on is this, that you should think of every, and I'm quoting here, you should think of every psychological experiment as an existence of proof that once upon a time at a particular location with a particular kind of subject or a particular environmental circumstances, you get this effect that A leads to B. That's and it. unless they people were p-hacking or fabricating data or being just totally wrong in their statistical analysis of this, mm -hmm. that is true. That in this situation, in this context with these people, A led to B. Now, I think the issue is trying to understand why A led to B. And we don't always understand why A leads to B or what right. can confound that a leads to B in these situations, but if you just change this one thing, then A doesn't lead to B anymore. But let's find out what that one thing is, because yeah. that is great. And I think the issue that comes into play many times is that we generalize these, these results to a much bigger, broader perspective. And in fact, we, we shouldn't. We need to keep doing these experiments to fully understand how A impacts B and what are the confounding factors and when does it work and when doesn't it and a replication that doesn't happen you know look at that isn't an exact replication what has changed John Barge talked about this you know the idea of priming you have to have that idea in your head before so if the yes. if the the social norms around something have changed and you're trying to prime a social norm well you can't have a social norm from the 1980s if that social norm is no longer around, that social belief. 
So there's a m- number of those factors that come into play. But I love this idea of that it's a proof, an existence of proof. It reminds me of our conversation with Channing Jang from the Busara Institute when he talked about how in the United States, the uh, the uh, public presentation stress test is a big deal. It raises cortisol like in just about everybody to have to stand up in front of a group of experts and make a presentation. But it didn't replicate in Kenya. And that's because when the Kenyans participants came out in front of the experts, they're wearing white lab coats and and in the United States, it looks like a you know an expert. In Kenya, that's what the butchers wear. Yeah. So they, they were like, "I'm not afraid to talk to the butcher." <laughs> you know, that's not a big deal. So, so it's not that it didn't replicate per se. It's just different. We're we're getting more evidence about how unique and interesting and individual our social norms are, our cultures are, the way we look at things. It's about context. It Bing. is about. The environmental and the social context, which is what this month is about. And absolutely, you know, I love this idea that it's easy for us to be seduced into generalizing every study that we read. And I know you wrote those words down, but (laughs) I get to read them. And I love that fact. But this idea that, that we are seduced to to say, well, if this happened here, then it, it applies across this wider swath. And we need to not do that as much. We yeah. need to be more contained in our enthusiasm. Oh, so. uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, also, can I just close on Beethoven? Okay. When, and this does relate to context. But, <laughs> okay. But Nisbet talked about the Emperor's Concerto. It's Beethoven's fifth piano concerto. And it's an amazing, it was his last piano concerto, by the way. It's an amazingly bombastic piece. It's huge. He Beethoven wrote it while he was in Vienna as Napoleon's army from France is marching into the city. Literally, oh. he's writing it at that time. And Beethoven was losing his hearing. And so all he could hear were like the big booms of, you know, bombs and things like that. Um, but it is the context. If you listen to that piece, you can just about hear the, the marching of the aggressing army coming into, into the city. You know, it's not, it's not a march, but, but you, you hear that kind of vibe, that, that intensity in, uh, in, in this concerto. And it's a fantastic, fantastic piece. So um, context matters even to artists. I'm going to have to listen to that. And now with that as a, a frame, I, I'll probably hear it very differently, which again, my context on this has changed. So thank you, Tim. Good. All right. So I think we should wrap that up. Like yeah, it's about okay. time. <laughs> I think it is. Right. Uh, we we hope that you'll join us next week for our episode with Fadi Maki, the managing director of Nudge Lebanon. His agency is applying behavioral science in war torn countries, and Fadi is often recognized as the leading authority on behavioral science in the Middle East. We are excited to be sharing our conversation with him. We are super excited about that. And we're very excited to share out our conversation with you. But we have to let you know that next week is our 250th episode. So that's a pretty cool milestone. I'm pretty glad we made it, Tim. I, You know, after our first one, do you think we would have ever made 250? No, not at all. <laughs> it's going to be a not so huge celebration, but you know, maybe if you you know announce it out, maybe more people will listen, and we would really, really appreciate that. And we hope that you'll join us for it as well. Yeah, we certainly hope that you do. And in the meantime, 
Between now and then, we hope you go out and find your groove. <laughs>